Hey, CCF Church, it's a joy to have a chance to share with you for this service. Of course, I wish I were there in person, but that is something we will have a chance to look forward to to do next time. And I promise if I'm there, I will take as many selfies with you as you want and as humanly possible. I've never been anywhere in the world except the Philippines to have more people want to take selfies. So if that makes you happy, we'll do it. But today we're actually going to jump into a really important topic that I know if you go to CCF, you've thought about it. And the question is, how do we practically have spiritual conversations with people? Have you ever wondered, what are some simple tools to engage coworkers, friends, people online in productive and genuine spiritual conversations? That's what we're going to discuss looking at one of the most famous passages in the scriptures. I think one reason maybe we don't have spiritual conversations is we've had conversations in the past and they've gone south. They haven't gone well and we don't want to harm relationships. Maybe another reason is we're afraid somebody's going to ask us a tough question and we just won't have an answer to it. Well, I think the passage we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 17 through the model of Paul, he's going to give us very simple kind of map, so to speak that all of us can follow to engage people practically in spiritual conversations. So if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to dive in to one of my favorite passages in the Bible. So let's take a look at this, and we're going to look at two encounters Paul has in Thessalonica, in Berea, and then we're going to focus on his experience in Athens, because that has a lot of crossover with the world in which we live today. So we're in Acts chapter 17, and we'll start, we'll just read verses one through four. Paul says this, he says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now keep in mind, Paul had just left a jail in Philippi, and that was about 33 miles away. He travels to Apollonia, then to Thessalonica, which is a total of 95 miles. That's more than 150 kilometers. Paul traveled from jail to come to Thessalonica. So this is a multi-day exhausting trip. When Paul shows up, as was his custom, even though Paul was first called a, an apostle to the Gentiles, he would first go to the synagogue and he would reason with the Jews from the scriptures. But notice what he didn't do. He didn't show up and start debating politics. Paul did not show up right away and discuss ethnic differences between Jews and between Gentiles. He didn't show up and do that. You see, like Jesus, he reasoned with them about the identity of Christ. Here's a powerful lesson we can learn right away. And sometimes it's a tough lesson we've learned the most difficult way, which is to keep the main thing 
the main thing. It's so easy for secondary issues to sidetrack a genuine spiritual conversation. And many times this is politics. Sometimes we bring it up because we want to win a political debate. And so we have to refrain from doing so at times. Other times, other people bring it up and we lose track of what the key issue is and get sidetracked. My point is not that we should never talk politics. I found that most people, if we approach them in the way they would want us to approach them in the right time, in the right attitude, are willing to have these conversations. But Paul also knew to keep the main thing the main thing. When it's all said and done, my goal is not to persuade somebody primarily to switch political parties or switch a view on a certain issue, but ultimately to come to Christ. That's what Paul does. He goes to the synagogue and he starts discussing and reasoning about the person of Jesus. Now, what's fascinating here is it says some Jews and some Greeks and women were persuaded. So some Jews who had a commitment to the Old Testament scriptures, some Greeks with a totally different worldview, and women who were looked down or at least had a lower status in that culture came to believe. And this tells me, and this is a good reminder to you and to me, that nobody is beyond coming to belief. The gospel is the most inclusive message that when understood can be embraced by all people from different walks of life. Anyone can respond to the gospel. So what happens when he comes into Thessalonica and preaches this message? Well, in jealousy, many of them form a mob and run Paul and Silas out of town. So he had some success, but their life is threatened and they flee Thessalonica. This takes us to our second story where Paul now goes to Berea. And what the scriptures want us to see, Luke, who's the writer of Acts, is to compare and contrast what happened in Thessalonica with what happened in Berea. Even though we'll find people believe in both cities, the circumstances and the response is very, very different. So let's take a look now, continue on in the conversation. We're still in Acts chapter 17, but this time in verses 10 through 12. Let's read these three verses together. And by the way, To get from Thessalonica to Berea, Paul now travels 45 miles, which is over 70 kilometers of a travel. So you think about the extent that Paul is going to to get to this city. Here's what it says, Acts 17, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul, these are the Christians, and Silas away by night to Berea, by night for fear of their life. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now, what's interesting is we see the same pattern repeating. That although Paul was the apostle again to the Gentiles, when he came to a new city, he would first go to the synagogue and reason with the Jews. This was Paul's pattern. And what's interesting is when he shows up, gets a very different reception. These people in Berea were eagerly examining the scriptures before Paul even shows up. This was the kind of people that they were. 
they read the scriptures, they discussed the scriptures, they examined the scriptures because they knew scriptures came from God and were the key to love, life, freedom, and the good life. So Luke is holding up these Jews in Berea as a model for all of us. Now, what happens when Paul shows up? They're already examining the scriptures. They listen to his message. Instead of just believing it, or instead of just rejecting it, they say, okay, let's compare this to scripture and see if it's right or wrong. Now, this reminds me of a story of a friend of mine. You might recognize his name as possible. His name is Micah Wilder. He's written a great recent book called Passport to Heaven, and he is the leading founder of a band called Addison Road. They have a tour bus. They tour around Utah and my country and other states, leading uh, concerts, seeing worship at churches, and preaching the gospel. Well, Micah has a really interesting story he tells in his book, and I had a chance to interview him on my YouTube channel and was blown away. And what what Micah shared was he grew up in the home of his his parents were a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which you might know as the Mormon Church. Now, this is an offshoot of historic Christianity, but also embraces some very non-Orthodox beliefs about the nature of heaven, the means of salvation, the person of Jesus, and the character of God. Well, he grew up, went on his mission trip. And if you're a part of the Mormon church, if you're a young man, you start dreaming and thinking and saving for your mission trips, which is really when you're college age, for two years of a regimented trip of sharing your beliefs, serving the community. Well, he's on his mission trip, he's out serving, and decides to go to a Baptist church to go to the pastor thinking if he is a young man, I don't know, 18, 19, 20 years old, whatever he was, could convert this pastor, this could be a huge win for him. We showed up and the pastor was not only loving and gracious towards him, but he pressed him with his understanding of the gospel. And he pressed him to go back to the scriptures. So on his Mormon mission trip, Micah starts reading the Gospels. He starts reading the New Testament and realizes the Gospel he had been told was not the Gospel taught by the apostles and taught by Jesus. And he ended up becoming a Christian on his Mormon mission. But why? He went to the Scriptures. You see, for me, I'm an apologist. I like to give a defense for the Bible, the existence of God. But if I'm ever speaking with a non-believer and they're willing to read something, I am always going to send them first to the scriptures because the scriptures are the power of God. Hebrews 4.12 talks about it's like a sword cutting marrow and convicting us of sin So interestingly, one of the most popular blogs I've ever written, I think the title is just like the best books to give a non-believer. And I guess people search that and it pops up. And I'll suggest books like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, More Than a Carpenter, Mere Christianity. But you know what the number one book is? The number one book I always suggest is The Gospel of John. I will challenge people who are open and say, have you ever thought about why Jesus had such an influence on history? across cultures, across time, religion, government, families? Have you ever just read some of the earliest accounts of Jesus and asked who Jesus is? 
that's one of my strategies I'd encourage you to consider. Well, Paul shows up in Berea and they're already examining the scriptures. Paul presents his message about Jesus and what happens? Same response as in Thessalonica. It says some Jews, some Greeks, and some women came to believe. Again, three very diverse social groups respond to the gospel. Now, what especially fascinates me here is that women came to believe. One of the most common things we hear today is that the gospel is anti-women. It's, it's against women and it's patriarchal. Well, there are some tough passages in the Bible we need to make sense of in its context. But what's amazing when properly understood the Bible is the most liberating book, and the gospel is the most empowering message for women. Going back to the first century, we're told in all of these stories, all three of them, that some women came to believe. So despite some of the narratives we hear today, that message clearly didn't get across the first women who heard the gospel from Paul himself and realized it was liberating. liberating that human beings are made in God's image, male and female. And Jesus died for all of us, invites all of us into a relationship. Now, what happens in Berea? The reception was a little bit different, but some agitators from Thessalonica followed him 72 kilometers to Berea and then stirred up things in Thessalonica, and now he has to flee. Can you imagine the people willing to do this, that they would go so far and travel with him all the way from one city to the next city just to stir up things so he has to flee. So this brings us to our third and our final story where we're going to slow down and focus because this story in Athens at Mars Hill is where we especially have a lot of lessons we can learn and some practical tips from Paul how to have spiritual conversations with non-believers. Now, what's interesting about Athens is Paul's life is not threatened as far as we know. He's not ran out of town. He's ridiculed. Now, let's be honest. Isn't that more likely to happen to you and me today? Maybe at work, maybe my friends, almost certainly online. This story where Paul is ridiculed, and yet he still shares the gospel, has some powerful lessons for all of us. Now, Athens at this time was not at its height it was a few years before, but it's still what you might call a university-type town. Even today, in Greece, it's the capital, and it's a huge, influential city. But if you just looked around the city of Athens, you would see physical idols of Zeus, of Poseidon, of Apollo, of these different gods very present. So this is a, set, a city just beaming with religious activity, and Paul steps right into it. So let's, let's continue reading. We're in Acts 17 again, but now we're in just verse 16. Here's what Luke writes about Paul. It says, now Paul, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
Now, a couple things jump out to me as I read this passage carefully. Number one, this was not a missionary destination for Paul. He specifically went to Thessalonica. He specifically went to Berea. He had specifically gone to Philippi. But now he's in between places waiting. What does he do? He still reaches out and ministers to people. Why? Because missions was not just something Paul did. It was who he was. Let me say that again. Missions was not just something Paul did at certain times in certain places. Paul saw himself as a missionary. Whether formally reaching out or waiting, Paul engaged people wherever he was. So how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as someone who occasionally goes on a mission trip, occasionally does mission things? Or do you see your life wherever you are looking for opportunities to engage people spiritually? That's what Paul did. You see, missions isn't something we do, but who we are. We are missionaries. You see, sometimes in the Christian church today, in the Protestant church, we have hired pastors, hired worship pastors, hired men leaders, hired youth pastors, and we send our money to go support missionaries. And all those things are fine, but it can help us think without realizing it, that it's somebody else's job to do these things. Friends, that's not in the scripture. While there are different giftings, all of us are called to have spiritual conversations and to engage people in evangelistic opportunities wherever we are. Now, there's something else in this passage that's interesting. It says, Paul's spirit was provoked in Athens. His spirit was provoked. Now, the question is why? Now, it wasn't because of some political issue in Athens. It's not like Paul looked around and he's like, man, they're on the wrong side of this issue, and he was provoked. That's not what it was. The question is, what provoked Paul? You see, if Paul was where I live in Southern California, if it was where he lived, where, where you lived in the Philippines or elsewhere internationally, would Paul be provoked there? My answer is, Almost certainly, yes. If Paul went to our places of entertainment, our places of leisure, places of shopping, our places of working, our parks, and just walked around, there might not be physical idols of Poseidon and of Apollo and of Zeus. But where you and I live, there would be just as many idols, and Paul would be provoked by that. See, the reality is, all of us get provoked by something. We live in a world where people make money by provoking you and by provoking me. I'm just read through the news. Look at the headlines. The headlines in many ways are attempts to provoke you to click on a certain article and read it and maybe buy something for the sake of money. Just click through YouTube. What do you see in the videos? There's thumbnails and titles trying to provoke. Why? Because it gets our energy going. We get pumped up. We click on something and it's views that translates to people towards money. We live in a provoking, provocative culture. All of us, people make money and their livelihoods trying to provoke us. So the question is, what do you and I allow to provoke us? 
Is it a political issue? There may be a time and place to get provoked by political issues. But Paul was provoked by idols. Paul was in Athens and he looked around and he saw lies and false ideas about God and the gospel. And that's what provoked him. So what provokes you? Is it injustice? Is it greed? Is it evil? Is it lies? Because the Bible doesn't say it's wrong to get provoked. I think we should get provoked, but get provoked at the right things. Let's keep going. In verse 17, Paul starts to get closer to his reasoning in uh, the area in Athens. So it said this, again, Acts 17, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Again, third time, Paul starts by going to the synagogue. And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So the fact that it says every day tells us this was something ongoing in the life and experience of Paul. He was there multiple days. But the other thing that's fascinating is he goes to the synagogue, the religious place, and he goes to the marketplace, and he ministers in both. You see, in our world today, we are kind of conditioned by our culture to think that there's certain secular places and certain sacred places. There's secular time and there's sacred time. So a sacred time should be Sunday at church, a place in the church building, secular everywhere else. Paul didn't look at it this way. Paul's like, whether I go to the synagogue or the marketplace, I'm going to look to spiritually engage people because God is everywhere. And God calls us to reach people everywhere. So our mission field is everywhere, friends, not just at church. Now, verse 18, let's keep going. It says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, Paul's, Luke specifically mentions when he's citing Paul what's called Epicureanism. Now, this is a, a word that's not commonly used today, but it was widely known philosophy that valued pleasure as the chief good. Does that sound familiar? One of the things we're told today is if it feels good, do it. Now, there are some differences with Athens in today. But so many of the ideas and philosophies are just the same. Paul's message is timeless because the gospel is timeless. But what's most interesting here is they call Paul a babbler. Is that interesting? He's just babbling. He's just talking nonsense. Well, in Acts 26, critics called Paul insane. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul was called a fool. And in 2 Corinthians 6, 8, Paul was called an imposter. You realize that? Paul's called a babbler, a fool, an imposter, and insane. Why? Because he preached the gospel. Friends, you and I have to ask ourselves a question when it's all said and done. Who are we trying to please? Who are we living our lives ultimately for? Because if it's the applause of the audience, that is going to come 
and that is going to go. Paul was insulted. And he's the greatest missionary the church has ever known and seen. Friends, probably a day doesn't go by I don't get insulted. In fact, probably if I actually read all the social media comments, which I can't for my own mental health, probably hourly, if not even on a more regular basis, insults just come in all the time. I have to ask myself a question. Why are people insulting me? Is it because I made a really bad argument? Maybe. Is it because I was a jerk? If so, I need to repent and change. Or is it because I'm preaching something such as the gospel that makes people uncomfortable and makes people upset? Whenever I get insulted, I often ask myself a question. I say, am I getting insulted for the right things? Why are people attacking me? And what's fascinating is they attacked Paul because of the message of the resurrection. Paul preached the resurrection. In fact, they thought Paul was preaching foreign deities and that this idea of the resurrection was some kind of foreign deity. Resurrection is mentioned three times in this passage that we've looked at. Now, why would that be so offensive? In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. perishing. Now, why is the cross foolishness? The world says seize power. The cross was an instrument of humiliation and degradation and shame and giving up power. From the standpoint of the world, that makes no sense. That's foolish to give up the power if you have it. What's amazing, Paul is preaching here in Athens. And I found a quote doing some research on this, that on the very day of the occasion of the ceremony for the Areopagus court that Paul is preaching at, the city's founding god Athene said this, once a man dies and the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. So in the founding of the city, the founder says there's no resurrection. Paul shows up preaching the resurrection. Paul kept the main thing, the main thing, and they insulted him. Friends, if we are going to share our faith, there are going to be people who insult us. Where does our identity come from? Let's keep going in the story. Verse 19, it says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now clearly there's some hyperbole and exaggeration going on. They went to the bathroom, they slept, and they ate. But Luke is making sure that it's clear that in Athens, there were many people whose lives were focused on just hearing and telling new things. So Paul is brought up to present. Now this is somewhat of an honor. You think about the number of actors and actresses that come to Hollywood, and there's a lot less spots to act than there are people who want to act. We know that. So there's a lot of bus drivers and maintenance and and waitresses. Well, it's the same in Areopagus. People would show up wanting to preach and teach, and Paul was given this privilege. But what's interesting is what do the people say? Do they put him up there and say, like the people in Berea, we want to know if this is true. Give us ideas. Let's go back to the scripture. I think the answer is no. 
Think the people in Athens were like a typical person just scrolling through their smartphone, looking for the newest TikTok video, Instagram post, YouTube video, you name it. They were just, this was like entertainment for them. That's how they lived their lives. So they're scrolling through different messages and Paul's like, resurrection, this is different. He sounds persuasive. Let's hear him out because this is entertaining. So they're not really putting Paul up there saying, we want to know if this is true. Make your argument, let's hear. But nonetheless, Paul's like, give me an audience. I'm going to speak. And what's fascinating is C.S. Lewis, former atheist who became a Christian, one of the great thinkers and writers of the 20th century, one of the things that held him back from coming to Christ is something he called chronological snobbery. That he had this idea that new ideas were always better than older ideas. So the idea of the gospel and this ancient religion was a turnoff to him because he dismissed older ideas. He had to get over his chronological snobbery and realize maybe some of the best ideas are ancient ideas. Well, these people in Athens had chronological snobbery. Just tell me something new. That's what we're living for. And Paul's like, okay, I'm going to preach to you and let's see what happens. So Paul stands up. We're now in verses 22 through 23, where Paul starts to give this famous message on Mars Hill. And here's what it writes. Verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now, why did Paul start this way? What's he trying to accomplish? I think rather than starting off with criticism, Paul starts off with common ground. Paul starts off with common ground. You see, common ground takes someone who's a foreigner and says, I can relate to you. I understand you. Common ground puts walls down and builds bridges. It builds commonality between people. So he starts off by recognizing, he's saying, hey, we have this in common. You're a religious people. I'm a religious person. And he noticed this was expressed in the phrase, the unknown God. See, oftentimes today, we just focus on differences that seem to divide people. Well, you're a different socioeconomic status. You're a different biological sex. You're from a different country. You're a different race. You're a different political party. (laughs) We focus on differences. Paul doesn't stand up and highlight the differences. Paul stands up and finds common ground with his audience. Why? Because he wants to build bridges and he wants them to consider the claims of Christ and the gospel. So step number one, we're going to come back to how to do this formally in relationships with people is find common ground with people. But then verse 23, Paul says something also very interesting. It says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now what is Paul doing? So he starts by saying, I see that you're a very religious people. He finds common ground with them and tells them, look, I'm paying attention. I notice who you are. I see you. Now he says, I understand you're on a religious quest. I can help you with that quest. 
So in a sense, you might say it's like a good salesman who recognizes a problem and says, well, guess what? I've got the solution that can help you with your problem. It's a brilliant strategy by Paul. So number one, he finds common ground. Number two, he says, you know what? On your search, I can actually help you reach your dreams and accomplish what your heart is set on. To do that, third, Paul does something very interesting. So he starts with common ground. Now he's going to draw a powerful contrast between their pagan deities and between the one true God. Now this passage, we're going to read six verses a little bit longer. So I want you to very carefully track with me because there's such important content in here. Let's read this. It's Acts 17, verses 24 through 29. But notice now what Paul is doing. Now Paul is revealing the differences between their beliefs and the one true God. So he starts, he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind and life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. It is actually not far from each one of us. For, and he gives a quote, in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said. Notice the common ground. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that we that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Do you see brilliantly what Paul has done? So again, he starts off by finding common ground. I see that you're religious people. Second, you are trying to find after God. I can help you with this. How does he help them? By showing them how their beliefs about God contrast with the one true God. Once he's found common ground, now Paul shows the differences. We won't read all these, but what are some of these differences? Well, one of the clear one is the creator God of the universe. He is a creator. Pagan deities were created. The one true God is sovereign over all. These pagan deities are limited. The one true God is everywhere he's omnipresent. Pagan deities are localized. The one true God is a provider. These pagan deities actually need provision given to them. The one true God is providential overseeing everything. Their gods are unpredictable. The one true God is relational. He's present. He's a father. They're pagan deities. They're capricious, distant, and impersonal. Do you see what Paul has done? He's kind of flipped the script on its head. In one sense, he's saying this is a new message for them. They haven't heard it. But in the other sense, it's the most ancient, true religion that all mankind traces back to one person. Paul is brilliantly addressing them. And he ends this by making a radical point. This unknown God whom you worship can actually be known. Now you and I, if we're in church, might miss how radical that is. But it's unique to the Christian religion. 
that God has taken on human flesh. And we can know this God personally because of what Jesus did in the cross and through his Holy Spirit. Friends, this is a uniquely powerful Christian idea. And this is what Jesus taught in John 17 when he says in verse three, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So here's what Paul then, he find common ground. He uh, shows differences between them, clearly a distinction. And now Paul calls them to action. So here's what it writes in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a time on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Again, the resurrection. Now in this claim, Paul puts to lie three common phrases we hear today. For example, you ever heard somebody say, live your truth, that each person can have their own truth? Paul's like, nope, there's one truth, there's one God, there's one what? One judge. But also that we can be canceled. Today you make a mistake and people want to cancel you in cancel culture. Paul's like, no, there's forgiveness. There's also this idea that all paths lead to God, prevalent today and in the time of Paul. And Paul's like, no, there's one God who's going to judge every man and every woman. And then verse 32 says this. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, here's their response now. Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among those were Donatius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. So what's fascinating is this little line at the end of Acts 17 tells us so much. It tells us that Paul gives this message comparing and contrasting the one true God from these false pagan deities, calls them to believe in Jesus because of his resurrection, and people respond in three ways. One is some people mocked him. Now, do you and I get mocked if we believe in Christian things today? And the answer is absolutely yes. We get mocked regularly. Sometimes people disagree with me online. Other times they mock me. And here's what we found. How do we respond to people who mock us? Number one, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that God would soften their heart. Pray that God would soften our hearts to better love them. And second, don't mock back. Show kindness. Show kindness. Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle word turns away wrath. Romans 2.4 says, your kindness leads to repentance. Proverbs 15.4 says, a soft word breaks a bone. Now, does this guarantee some people will listen? No, some won't. I've been gentle and kind with people and they continue to mock. And at some point, I'll just block them on social media because I only have so much capital for people to keep mocking me. I've got to protect just my emotional health. I think we have to, to a degree, be wise there. But the Christian response, it's to show grace, to show kindness, and to pray for somebody. Paul preached the truth and got mocked for it. But second, there were people who were interested. There were people who were interested, didn't reject, didn't accept, but wanted to hear more. How do we respond to them? We do exactly what Paul did. We engage. We engage. We start by building relationships, gaining understanding, and furthering the conversation. So I wonder who in your life 
are those who are open. Now, some people are open at one season in life, but not another. So don't think if somebody's not open, they're forever closed. That's not necessarily the case. You might be surprised at how life circumstances can cause somebody to be open in a different way. Recently on, on my YouTube channel, I had a conversation with a young man, mid-20s, by the name of Coleman Hughes. He's one of my favorite thinkers on social issues, cultural issues, on racial issues. Uh, he's also an atheist. Very thoughtful. I thought, you know what? I'm going to reach out. I'm going to invite him on simply to have a conversation. And he accepted my invitation. We had a great conversation. It wasn't a debate. I simply asked him where he thought the universe came from how he can ground right and wrong. Like why would racism be wrong if there is no God? And we talked about who Jesus was and is. Great conversation. I engaged him because he seemed willing to have spiritual conversations. And I'm hoping we can have more. So number one, the mockers, pray for them. Uh, treat them with kindness. Second, the interested, engage them further. And third group are the believers. You know, in every city Paul went to, in our account, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, there were people who believed. But in this story in Acts, something interesting is told. We're told about Donius the Arapagite. Well, a church father, Eusebius, who writes in the fourth century, says that Dionys the Arapagite became the first bishop of Athens. So if Eusebius is right. Then on Paul's visit, this one person in turn started shepherding many and many others and helping to build the church in Athens. That's a powerful thing. Now, since we're getting towards the end of this, you might be thinking, well, Sean, you're an apologist, you're a pastor. This is Paul. Of course he can do this. He saw Jesus. He saw miracles. I'm not Paul. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter. You and I have the same spirit inside of us. And based on this passage, let me just tell you, here's some simple questions all of us can ask. Number one, what does the person believe? When I'm in a conversation with somebody, if it's an ethical issue or a political issue, I will have those conversations at time, but especially spiritually. Step number one, what does the person believe? I spent too much time in my life responding to objections and questions where I didn't first understand what the person really believes. That's where I start. Tell me what you believe. Help me understand. Paul knew what the people believed because he was observant of the city. Second, why do you believe it? You can ask anybody this question. So I understand what you believe about God and about the Bible and about the afterlife, etc. Help me understand why you believe it. It could be because of a relationship. It could be for moral reasons. It could be for intellectual reasons. Whenever I'm in a conversation with somebody, what that person believes, help me understand why. And then third, where do we have common ground? This is what Paul did, didn't he? He's like, I see that you are a religious people. He found common ground with them. Find common ground with those you're talking to in conversation. Find common ground with them. Fourth, where do we differ? Where do we differ? This is what Paul does. He shows the contrast between their beliefs and our beliefs. That's what we want to do. We find common ground, show where we differ, and then finally, a call to action. Friends, all of us 
can do this. All of us, if we have the right attitude and take the right approach, can engage those spiritually around us. Ask good questions. Be a good listener. Find common ground, show differences, and then lovingly call people to action. I really believe God can use you and he can use me just like he used Paul in Acts because the same spirit working in Acts is working in us today. Amen. God bless you all. And I hope to see you in person soon.